Amen. How about you guys? But I was really blessed by that worship time. Isn't it great to know that when you're on the solid rock, when your relationship is founded on Jesus Christ, you have a firm foundation? It makes me think of the scripture in 1 Corinthians 15:58. Paul said, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. We want to welcome you. If you are visiting and you're not a visitor, you're a guest, we want you guys to feel right at home. A few announcements and a few announcements, and we'll jump into our, our word. I want to encourage everyone to come out on Wednesday night. We have a very special Wednesday night plan, and um, I'm not going to give it many details, but it's, it's going to be great. Um, Elaine's got some amazing music, and uh, Adam is going to be giving a message, so no pressure, Adam. So we want to encourage everyone to come out. And uh, we got, after Labor Day, we got a few new Bible studies launching. We have really great classes already going on, and we decided we want to get more of you involved in our life groups. So in addition to our current groups, we have a group for young adults launching and a group for kind of people in middle-aged territory in life. And um, we're, we're thinking about launching another one. And uh, Lisa Beeson has launched a group on Mondays for ladies. So if you're a lady looking to get connected to kind of a, a life group in the community, uh, talk to Lisa. And there's more unfolding as we speak. So we want everyone to get connected to a small group. If you only come on Sunday, you'll experience half of what the church life is all about, living life in community. So before we um, go to the scriptures, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that you're good. And Father, I thank you for everyone within the sound of my voice that you brought them here. And that God, they uh, chiseled out uh, an hour or so out of their busy weeks to worship you. And I pray that as they came here, that they would be encouraged, they would be edified build up, and they would be challenged by your word. Father, forgive us where we fall short of you, and we we pray for clean hands and pure hearts. And Holy Spirit, we invite your presence into this meeting so that we can encounter you and experience you, and may everything said or done be to honor and glorify Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, we've been going through a series called The Pursuit of Joy, and joy is something, as we talked about last day, far different than happiness. Happiness is based upon happening circumstances. If the circumstances are good, you're H-A-P-P-Y, you're happy. If the circumstances aren't favorable, it's hard to be happy. But joy is so much deeper and so much that if you're a Christian, you always have joy. Sometimes you just need to tap back into it. And we're going to talk about that today. So today's message is called Joy Jammers. Those things in life that hinder joy, we're going to talk about how to minimize those so that you can experience joy on a more regular basis. Yesterday, did anybody see the rainbow? Did anyone else have a rainbow at their house? Okay, a few of you. I looked outside and where I live, it's like a giant hill, like going up to a mountain. So at the bottom of the hill, I looked up and there was a rainbow that arched over the entire house. And as I saw that, I'm like, wow, so... um, I think it was my girls' nap time. I had to get them to come out, get them up. So we're all standing on the bottom of the hill looking up and seeing the rainbow. And later on, I talked to my wife and I said, you know, it's kind of like this. Life, there's a lot of storm clouds. There's a lot of rain. But isn't it amazing when the sun hits those raindrops, how it produces colors beyond your wildest imaginations? And if it wasn't for the storm clouds and the rain, there would be no rainbow. 
And I'm wondering how many of us, that's the same in our life, that because of hard circumstances, because of storms, because of the rain, all of a sudden God shines on it and it produces a beautiful rainbow. It's been said that all, all land but no rain produces desert. And I think that's true of our lives. If we don't have adversity, if we don't have hard times, when people look at our lives, they don't see depth sometimes. And for those of you who have been through many trials and you've allowed the Lord to shape those and produce rainbows in your life, when people look at your life, they say, wow, that's a trophy of God's grace. Wow, if that person made it through, I can make it through. Amen. So kind of the backdrop before we jump into verse 27 of chapter 1 is Paul's writing to the church at Philippi. And many of them are struggling. They're being persecuted by people who do not like Christianity. Um, many churches are struggling with the Judaizers that are trying to come in and produce a legalism. So there's persecution on the outside. There's even persecution on the inside. And Paul's writing to this church. And basically the whole essence of this passage we're going to look at today. He said, listen, no matter what you're going through, hang in there and stand together. Be unified. Because when persecution happens, it's easy to divide. But I want persecution to draw you closer to each other and closer to God. And whenever you're unified and the world sees it, it's going to give the gospel a highway, a platform to get out there and to make an impact. Because when the lost world sees that you're standing true and standing together, they're saying there must be something real. But when the lost world looks on and see a church dividing and splitting and arguing, bickering, they're like, I get enough of that in the world on my job. I don't need any of that. So the gospel is hindered. So Paul's going to talk to us today about how to stand united together so the gospel is never hindered, so the lost world watching on says, I want what they got. So let's jump into chapter 1, starting verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. A little backdrop before we go on the next verse. Um, The city of Philippi was inhabited by many former Roman soldiers. So when he says, stand together, stand firm, in, in their mind it gives this picture of these Roman soldiers putting their shields together, locking together as one unit. So he's saying, stay together, stand firm. And verse 28 says, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries. You might want to underline that word, terrified. In the original Greco-Roman culture, this word was used as a panicked horse. A horse that was just horse-struck, panicked. So it's saying, don't be terrified by your adversary, which to them is a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. Now look at this next verse. It's one of those interesting verses in the Bible. It says, for to you it has been granted. And when you think of granted, you think of a gift, right? It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ. So it's a gift, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, how many of you would think of suffering as a gift? I don't know about you, but I don't readily think of suffering as something that's a blessing. But we'll see why. Verse 30, having the same conflict which you now saw in me and now hear in me. So as Paul is writing this in a Roman prison, he takes us back to the book of Acts where the city of Philippi saw Paul thrown into prison. You remember the story and how an earthquake happens and he gets loose and the jailer gets saved. And he said, you saw me in prison. And by the way, I'm in prison again. So he's going from one prison to the next. 
in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, continue on, he's going to give us some encouragement. You ever have someone that gives you what's called the sandwich method? They give you good news, challenging news, and good news. Sometimes you'll find that in the Bible. Here's the good news, but here's the challenging news. And by the way, here's the good news again. So Paul just gave us challenging, and in the previous chapter he gave us good news. You remember the, he started a, a good work, will complete it. He gave challenging, and listen to good news. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. So he's saying, if this is your reality, if there's anyone in here that's encouraged, may that encouragement rub off on others. Is there any fellowship of the Spirit? Do you guys feel this connectivity with God and with each other? If that's so, do you have affection and mercy? If that's true, notice he says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. There's that same theme of unity again. Having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now, verse 3 is really hard to do. It's really, really challenging. It says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Isn't that hard? Nothing? Don't do anything out of selfishness or conceit? Ouch. It says, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only out for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. So today we're going to talk about some joy jammers. What are some things that hinder your joy? You know, it's like you start off the Christian walk so on fire, so lively, and all of a sudden, does it seem like people get in the way sometimes? Does it seem like circumstances get in the way? Some of you, it's your job on Monday gets in the way, and all of a sudden you're like, I had joy, but where is it? And we're going to talk about that. How, how does things get in the way? If you'll turn in your listening guide, the first point is this. Live your life for a greater purpose. Live your life for a greater purpose. If you look back at verse 27 and 28, it says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, when you think about worthy of the gospel, it's saying that don't give those on the outside world any excuse not to believe in Jesus. It's been said, people say, I love your Jesus, but I don't like your Christians. You guys have probably heard that. I would go to church, but the church is full of what? Hypocrites. And Paul is saying, listen... Live your life in such a way you're not going to be perfect, you're going to mess up, but be authentic, be real, be united. Jesus said, by this all men will know you're my disciples, by your what for one another? By your love. Now see, the watching world is not expecting perfection, because they know that no human being is perfect, but they're expecting a group that truly loves each other and truly united together. And if we can't get those basic blocks down in the church... What hope is there for the lost world watching on? They want something that's going to give them truth. A little background of Philippi. It was an important city because it guarded the road that linked Asia with Europe. Philippi became an official Roman colony with thousands of retired soldiers who lived there. And I want to give you guys a story, and this comes from church history. This comes from 1531. And this guy's you're seeing the picture, his name's Thomas Bilney. He was burned at the stake for his witness for Christ by Bloody Mary. Many of you have studied Western Civ and um, before that uh, church history, um, all that took place. But basically what was interesting about his story is Mr. Bilney, the night before he was to be executed, they allowed his family to come, his wife, his kids. And he actually, they're going to spend the night with him and he actually sent them home and said, I'm okay. 
I'm going to sleep through the night. I'm going to get some rest. You guys be at home because I'm at peace. And God gave him supernatural peace even though the next day he was going to be executed. Now, can you imagine that? Most of us just get all upset if we're sick or something's happening, adversity. But could you imagine knowing the next day that you're going to die and you're like, I'm fine. I'm going to continue to serve God and continue to help others. So that's kind of what Paul's saying is let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. Don't be terrified. Don't be, don't be afraid. In Acts 12, we see Peter on the night that he was supposed to be executed. Obviously, God prevented it, but we see him sleeping in prison where an angel has to tap Peter and say, Peter, get up. What, what kind of peace did he have? Well, if you look back in verse 28, it says, not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is a proof of their perdition, but to your salvation. In other words, when people are persecuting you and they know they can't get to you, it's proof to them that maybe the gospel's real. But it's also proof to them that they're not on the right team. If they're hindering and persecuting Christians, it's going to give them a wake-up call that maybe I need to rethink this. Maybe I need to think about something other than what I'm doing now. So if the first thing about not having things jam up your joy is live your life for a greater purpose. You know, it's almost like God is saying to us through His Word that life's not about you. It's about God. It's about others. And if you look at the acrostic joys, we talked about the old Sunday school acrostic. J stands for what? And then O stands for? And then Y. So Jesus, others, yourself. When we flip it, we don't experience joy because we're not focused on the right people. We're not focused on God and others. I used to have a pastor growing up. He had this saying that stuck with me like 18 years later. He said, it's not about you. It's about him and them. And that little saying has stuck with me ever since. It's about him and them. Number two, how to overcome the joy jammers in your life, the things that hinder your joy. Keep your composure even in the midst of chaos. Keep your composure even in the midst of chaos. Look at verse 29. It says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Anybody ever heard of Bertha Smith? Most people have not. Well, she, she passed away um, several years back, but she was a missionary for the Baptists. And she went to China and other places. And she was 42, 42 years on the mission field. And after she retired, she spent 29 years speaking to churches, groups that would let her speak and encourage them to keep the faith no matter what. I was reading one story about Bertha. She was in China when uh, the communists took over. And they, they told, the Baptist Mission Board and others told the Christians to evacuate. Get out of there. The communists are coming. You're going to lose your life if you don't leave. And Bertha said, you know what? I have people in the hospital here who are believers and they need my help. So everyone fled. Many people fled, but Bertha stayed. And she said, as the communists were coming in, bullets were flying throughout the hospital. And Bertha was helping a patient loving on them, ministering to them, praying with them. And all of a sudden, as she went to go help this patient, the place in which she was standing, bullets went through that spot. It would have killed her on the spot, but she somehow slipped by. And she said throughout the whole time, she had complete peace. And she was singing a hymn, How Firm a Foundation. That was the hymn she was singing in the midst of the bullets flying. And she said, no matter what happened, God gave her peace in the midst of a storm. And when I, when I think of birth, I'm like, Wow. May God give us a little bit of that, that even though the bullets are flying, even though things are happening, we're going to keep our Christ's composure. 
You know, here, here, let me define Christ's composure because it's a new word for you. Christ's composure is being composed because Christ is in control. It's being composed because Christ is in control. So I want you to think about the two gifts that God gives us. The first one is the gift of salvation. We all love that gift, right? When we think of salvation, oh, it's such a great gift. I mean, we love it. We cherish it. We thank God that we're saved. But then the gift of suffering, we're like, God, you can have this gift back. I don't want it. I don't want it. But if we read the scriptures, the Bible says suffering is indeed a gift. As we learn from First Peter, we'd never choose it. But if it's chosen for us, if God allows us to go through persecution, he's going to bring good even out of a bad situation. Amen. The gospel is going to continue to get out. Now you're asked, how is suffering a gift? Well, here's the reason why. We're not living for today. We're living for eternity. So if in the today, in the moment, you experience suffering, if what you're doing benefits eternity, it's a gift in view of eternity. So you're not living for just today. You're living for forever. And that's how it's a gift. So we see the gift of salvation and we see the gift of suffering. If you look at verse 30, it tells us that we're not guaranteed a pain-free life. Somehow we, we come forward to the altar, we pray to receive Christ, and we think all of a sudden God's just going to come through every time. There's going to be no more pain, no more sickening, no, no more headaches, no more aches, no more whatever. My bank account's going to have money. Wouldn't that be great if that was the case? But God never promised that. Jesus said, in this world you will have what? You'll have persecution. You'll have tribulation. But then he says, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So if you do find suffering and you do find things that happen, just realize it's temporary for the believer. It's not permanent. Amen? So something I want you to think about before we go to the next point. How can you think about Jesus as the Prince of Peace? How can you know him as such until you had to go through a night of turmoil? How can you know that he's the God who heals Jehovah Rophe? He's the God who heals unless you were sick and needed to be healing. How can you know that he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother until you had to go through times of loneliness where you felt like you had no one to turn through? How can you know that he's the God of all mercies and all grace until you needed some grace? You needed him to pick you up and forgive you. You know God by experiencing him. And some things... It's hard, really difficult to know just on an intellectual basis until we experience it. So think about this. Everything you're going through, if Jesus goes through it with you, you begin to know him on a deeper level. And the same is true with your spouse's family. Don't you think the hard times are what brings you closer together? Don't you feel that way? I mean, when you're going through turmoil, when you're going through financial crisis, whatever it may be, and you, you turn to God and turn to each other, that relationship is so much solid than it was before. So think about that. You know God more when you experience Him and He walks through the trials with you. Amen? Number three, receive God's inner grace which transcends any outer challenges. Receive His inner grace. If you look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, He gives us some beautiful pitch. I'll read those verses back. If there's any consolation in Christ, let me ask you a question. Do you have comfort? Do you have encouragement about being a Christian? Amen, right? But some days we don't feel it. So here's what happens in a church. If you have encouragement and I don't, you're supposed to encourage me and vice versa. So in a church, somebody should be encouraged. If everybody's as down in the dumps, then we're in trouble. We've got to get tapped back into Christ. Any comfort of love. Isn't it comforting to know that God loves you no matter what? 
always, I tell my children, I love you always, forever, no matter what. Now they're starting to repeat it back to me. Daddy, I love you always, forever, no matter what. Isn't it great? As a child of God, He loves you always, forever, no matter what. I don't know about you, but that gives me comfort. It says if there's any affection, fellowship of the Spirit. Now, here's the thing. You and I may not have a lot in common outside of Jesus. But because we have Jesus, that's what unites us together. And the fellowship of the Spirit means the Holy Spirit is in us, and He works through us, and He connects us together. If there's any affection and mercy, when you look at affection and mercy... It's talking about there should be real love. It should be sincere. Have you ever went into a place that you could tell the people were just plastic and fake? I mean, how does that feel? If you ever move into a neighborhood, how many of you have ever gotten a welcome gift? Anybody ever gotten that? Oh, this is kind of a confession. In Asheville, all the times we moved in Asheville, no one ever gave us a welcome gift when we moved. My wife and I, I can't remember a single time. Whenever we moved to Canton and we, when we lived in Clyde, every single time people knocked on our door, here's kids with cookies, here's a pound cake, and I'm just like, man, Asheville needs to get on the hospitality. It's like people are like, all right, they moved in, big deal, they're going to move out in a, a, a 12 months. Where we live, it's like, welcome to the neighborhood. You're part of our, our, our community. And it's like, did you know that whenever you're moving, moving into the Christian family, in other words, the gospel is when you believe that Jesus Christ died for you, you receive that, you ask for forgiveness, you invite him into your life. All of a sudden, did you realize that God gives you a welcome gift? Anybody realize that? God says, welcome to the family. And within that gift is the Holy Spirit. God gives every believer the Holy Spirit the moment you receive Christ. It's not a second work of grace. It's the moment you receive Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. Paul said, if any man does not have the Spirit, he's not a Christian. Said that in Romans. In other words, if you have the Holy Spirit, you're a Christian. So you got the Holy Spirit. We each get at least one spiritual gift. Did you realize that? Within your, your, your welcome kit to the family, welcome to the community of God, you get at least one spiritual gift. The question is, are you using it? Have you unlocked it? Have you unwrapped it? Because whenever you use the gift, man, you're so filled. You feel that energy and excitement. When you don't use the gift, you feel like, you know, I'm just not happy. No one ever says hello to me. Were you serving? Here's the key. If you're not serving, you're swerving spiritually. God has each given us a gift. Also, he's given us eternal life. Isn't that a pretty good gift? You're going to live forever. Even when this body is like a tent, you fold it up, you live forever with God. And you have brothers and sisters around the world. Did you realize that your family is much bigger than you ever dreamed about? One day you're going to be hanging out with Moses and Abraham and Jacob and all the saints of the Bible. You're going to be with them one day. So you have... A heavenly family. So when he says these are some characteristics, he's saying that whenever you move in to the family of God, God gifts you. So look at the person next to you and say, you're gifted. You're gifted. Amen. So whenever you realize who you are in Christ, it will help you through any crisis. When you realize who you are in Christ, it will help you through any crisis. Let's jump down to verse 2. He says, if this is true, if you have affection, you have fellowship, you have love for one another, then you should be like-minded, having the same love, being one in mind and purpose. So, at Arden First, if we are united in Christ, what should that look like in our church? What should, what should, what should it be like? Well, it should be that we help each other out. When one of us is struggling... 
We say, you know what, because we're in Christ, you're part of my family now. It's natural for us to help our natural family, but now we're part of the spiritual family. Guess what? You're stuck with me too, and I'm stuck with you. So we're to help each other out. We're to be there for one another. Whenever we realize that, God can do amazing things in our life. Amen? And finally, how do we overcome the joy jammers? Number four, look out for others and not just yourself. Look out for others and not just yourself. Verses three and four says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. And by the way, that word esteem is not that you think people are better than you because we're all equal in Christ. It's how you treat them. You treat them better than yourself. It's not saying you're better than me or I'm better than you. It's saying the way I treat you is I esteem you better. And it says, let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. When I was a kid, I used to think that when I was having a bad day, everybody was having a bad day. You guys ever think, sometimes I even think that as an adult. You guys ever think that? Man, I'm having a bad day. The whole world must be having a bad day. And what's the center of that is it's focused on us. If I'm bad, if things aren't good, then it's bad with everybody. I was reading a story about Dr. Leo Winters. Dr. Leo Winters was a skilled surgeon in Chicago. And he was one of those surgeons that could do these amazing operations and do life-saving treatments for people, surgeries that would just save people. And God really worked through him and his ability. One day he was called to a hospital at 1 o'clock in the morning. And the person on the other end said, you've got to come quickly. young boy has been in a horrible accident and you're the only surgeon that can save him. You've got to get here immediately. So he threw on his clothes, grabbed his keys, jumped out into his car. And as he was heading to the hospital, he took a shortcut through one of the Chicago ghettos where there were known to be rough gang violence. And he's like, I- I've, got to, I've got to get there as soon as I can because it's by the minutes. If I don't get there quick enough, this young boy could die. As he came to a stoplight... He felt his door open and someone grabbed him out of the car, throwing him out of the car. And the guy said, I need this vehicle immediately. He was wearing a flannel shirt and a gray hat. And as soon as the surgeon was saying, wait, I'm trying to save someone's life, he took off and he found himself walking. The surgeon didn't know what to do, so he went to a gas station. He got on the phone called a taxi. Unfortunately, it took him over an hour to get to the hospital because now his vehicle was gone and finally the taxi dropped him off. And whenever Dr. Winters showed up to the hospital, all the nurses had their heads drooped down. said, Dr. Winters, it's too late. The young boy has died. And he's like, I can't believe it. And as soon as he was getting ready to explain what happened, they said, the father is in the chapel. He's all torn up. You need to go speak to him. So he went to the chapel And he saw this guy in a flannel shirt, and he had this hat, this gray hat, all scrunched up in his hands, just asking, God, why did you do this? Why? And all of a sudden, he realized that was the guy that threw him out of the car. He was trying to save his son's life, and in his effort to save his son's life, he pushed away the only one that could truly save his son. As I was thinking about that story, how many of us... Push God away, the only one that can really help us. We think we've got to do it on our own. And that's really where selfish ambition and conceit comes in. Conceit is kind of this inflated self-esteem that I'm better than I really am. And selfish ambition is, it's all about me. 
And don't we see those two things in Americans' culture, the two by selfishness and this empty conceit? And it's something that's so hard. I read a story about this woman. She came to Rick. He was a young youth pastor in Miami. And, uh, you know, sometimes people struggle, and she was having a struggle. This young, young lady came to Rick, and she said, uh, Rick, I want to commit suicide. I want to, I want to throw my life away. And the youth pastor was very bright. He said, you know what, since you're going to throw your life away anyways, why don't you give me six months? Because I have a lot of people in Miami that are struggling, a lot of kids who really need help. Just give me six months, and after that you can throw your life away. And in the process of helping out others, she gave her life to Christ. She obviously decided not to commit suicide. And she only found herself through giving herself away. And isn't that what it's all about? The Christian life. It's about serving God and serving others. Many of us will say, well, Timothy, I'm not selfish. I'm not selfish. Well, I would, I would say that all of us are born selfish. I have in this cooler, and I'm going to hold it away from you, because um, as you can see, it's a smelly fish. Now, here's something I taught my kids this week, and it stuck with me, so I hope it will stick with you. And I need some hand sanitizer after this, by the way. This is a fresh fish. I just got it today. Um, Oh, my goodness. All right. So when you think of selfish, I want you to think of smelly fish. Now, here's the thing about fish. The fish doesn't know it smells, but everyone around the fish knows it smells. Whenever someone is selfish, they don't know they're selfish, but everyone around them knows they're selfish. So remember, selfish as smelly fish. Whenever I'm selfish, man, it's all about me. I don't realize it. I'm thinking that way, but everyone around me knows smelly fish. Selfish, smelly fish. And you're like, oh, let me, let me get this fin in here. Cause it's uh, <clears throat> A little, little disclaimer, as I, I had to go to three different stores before I found a whole fish. Um, and as I had that fish sitting next to me on the car on my way to church this morning, I'm just like, oh, the fish. Lord, help me. I mean, it, it smelled bad. It's fresh, never frozen at Publix, by the way. It came from Publix. Fresh, never frozen. So um, I don't want to touch anything with his hand anymore. So here's the thing. You say, well, I'm not selfish. Well, let me prove to you that you and I struggle with it. When someone takes a picture of you, who's the first person you look at? Can we talk? <laughs> and if you don't look good in the picture, we're not going to post that picture. We're not going to print it. Everyone else could look great. The whole family, all ten people in the picture. But if you're not looking good, we're not going to take it. Ouch. So what do you do? How do you overcome selfishness? How do you not smell like a smelly fish? Well, it's really hard. It's a challenge. The only way to do it is verse 4. Let me read verse 4 again. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So what that verse is saying is, life is not about me. Life is about God and others. And whenever I start living that way, I will no longer smell like a fish around others. I will begin to smell with the fragrance of Christ, his beauty, his glory, his excellency, because Let's just put it this way. Unselfish, loving, giving people, they're hard to find. And some of you have best friends, 
And all of a sudden you realize, you know what, my, my best friend is selfish. And I'm selfish. And the friendship has friction. And sometimes in marriages, the first thing I realize, and this is what I would like to tell all the newlyweds, when you first get married, you realize that you're selfish and your spouse is selfish. And the first year, the reason why you have so many fights is not just because of finances, it's because you're selfish. But the only way to cure, the only remedy, the only medicine you can take is getting a dose of Jesus and realizing that when I am consumed with Him, I'm no longer consumed with myself. Whenever I'm fixated on Him, I'm no longer fixated on myself. Well, Here's another way to reframe it. If you didn't like the picture illustration, I'll give you another one. You walk into the room. Whenever you're thinking about how you feel in that situation, who's looking at you, who's the focus on? Have you ever walked into a room and you thought about how I'm going to encourage that person that's discouraged, how I'm going to reach out? You don't even think about yourself. And all of a sudden you find yourself having a much better time. And if I'm honest, I struggle with selfishness. I really do. And I don't like looking at it. I don't like smelling it. But often the Holy Spirit will say, Timothy, you smell like a smelly fish. You're selfish. The only way to overcome selfishness is realizing Jesus is at the center of my life and then others and then myself. Think about that practically. If everyone practiced Christ-like putting others first, how would the world be different? Marriages would be so much better. I would come home, if I practiced, I would come home and say, baby, you've been with the kids all day. Let me take over. Let me do the dishes. Let me take out the trash. Why don't you go out with the girls tonight? My wife's not here. She's in the nursery, so she's like, yes. Um, You know, if we could just practice this one principle, our joy would be so maximized. We would have joy overflowing and abounding, and people would say, I want what you got, because you don't smell like a fish. I smell the fragrance of Christ through your life, because you put God first, and you put others ahead of yourself. And all the church said, Ouch and amen. One final story, and we're we're finished today. Many of you have heard of Martin Luther, right? Anyone ever heard of Ulrich Zwingli? It's got a hard name to pronounce. Anybody heard of Zwingli? Only only a nil in the room, probably. Well, Martin Luther, everyone's heard of. Ulrich Zwingli, he was another part of the Protestant Reformation. And the two, as you can imagine... People in the Protestant Reformation, if you're a leader of it and you're going against the established church, they had pretty strong personalities. I mean, you would not want to get in the fight with Martin Luther or Ulrich Zwingli. So somehow they had a conflict with each other. And they were at odds over some probably minute doctrinal issue. And they didn't want to mess up the Protestant Reformation. They didn't want to mess up what God was doing. But they were at odds. So all of a sudden, Zwingli was looking at the mountainside one day. And he saw this picture. He saw two mountain goats. He was praying and saying, God, what should I do? I don't want to be in a constant tiff with Martin Luther. I know you're using him. He's called. But God, you called me too. And I don't know what to do. And he didn't know what to do. And all of a sudden, he saw these two mountain goats. And it was on a very narrow mountainside. That there was no impasse. And all of a sudden, the goat, mountain goats lowered their head as though they were going to fight for who would get to pass. And the unthinkable happened as Zwingli looked on. The mountain goat that was ascending, climbing up the mountain, he bowed down and laid down flat so the other goat that was going down the mountain climbed over his back. And God spoke to him. 
and basically told them, listen, the only way that you're going to sin in the kingdom is by first humbling yourself. In an effort, the goat that humbled himself was able to keep climbing up. But imagine if both goats said, I'm going to do it my way. They butted heads. One of them may have won, but perhaps both of them would have fallen off the mountainside. What Paul is saying here is if you want joy, you've got to get rid of the smelly fish. You've got to put others first. And whenever you do so, God's going to really help you and he's going to mold you. If you look at your outline, your take-home truth is this. Don't allow joy jammers to take your joy. Instead, focus on Jesus and watch your joy, joy soar. I want my joy to soar. I don't know about you. but So here's some applications as, as we think about this, how to apply, because we've talked about a lot of challenging topics. The first one is this. The lower you go, the higher you go. Think about those two goats. I want to be the goat that's going to bow down and let someone else move, move on and allow the Lord to exalt me. So choose humility. Instead of focusing on your problems, start focusing on God's promises. Because if you focus on your problems, you're going to get discouraged. If you focus on God's promises, you're going to get encouraged. Do you know that for every problem you're going through, there's a promise in God's Word? Start learning His promises. And finally, take your mind off how great or not so great you are. One extreme is prideful. The other extreme is pitiful. Either extreme is wrong. Instead, focus on how good God is. Magnify Christ in your life. Because if I'm focused on Jesus... Am I really going to be discouraged all the time? If I'm focused on Jesus, I'm going to be just like the people like I told you. Bertha and the other church people that said, you know what, no matter what happens, God is for me and God is with me and I will not fear what man can do to me. So choose joy and watch Jesus do something amazing in your life. Let's pray. Father, we've had some fun today with the fish and with the gift. And Lord, I pray that what we will take away... It's not just the image of a fish in our mind. But what we'll take away is this. That when I choose joy, when I choose what God wants to do, an amazing thing happens. And Father, I don't have to ask anyone to raise their hands because I think all of us would say that we struggle with selfishness. That's the, the human nature. But God, I do want to pray that you would help us. Help us to overcome the selfishness, the pride, the things that keep us from unity in our lives, in our family, in our relationships, in our marketplace jobs, and in the church. Instead, help us to focus on Jesus. God, we repent for not doing so, as we should. Some of us do it more often than others, but Lord, help us to strive through the power of your Holy Spirit. And finally, there may be someone here today that none of this really makes sense because it's hard to choose joy if you've never chosen Jesus personally. The Bible says if you're willing to invite Jesus into your life and turn from your sin and turn to Him, the Bible says that He will come into your life. He will have a relationship with you. Friend, if you need to receive Christ, it's no magical formula. It's just you reaching out to God. If you'll say something like, Dear Jesus, I've never given my life to you fully. I believed in you, but I, I've never received you. So today, I invite you to come into my life. Just pray that right now to my I invite you to come into my life. I make you my Lord and Savior. And ask Him to forgive you. Jesus, please forgive me where I've done wrong, where I've sinned. 
And help me, Lord, to be flooded with your joy as I realize that I'm a new creation in Christ. And thank him for it right now. Thank you, Jesus, for giving me this new life. Father, we love you and we thank you. Help joy jammers not to jam up our joy, but help our joy to grow and expand as we put God at the center and we put others first. In the name above all names, Jesus, we pray. Now, God's children said, Amen. At this time, if you'll stand, we're going to have our closing hymn of invitation. If you have any prayer requests, if you want to join the church, if you want to pray about something in your life, come on and I will get the fish out of your way. So Adam and I will be at the front.